Welcome to the Live Leadership Podcast with myself, Leela Singh. All things coaching, career, and personal branding. This podcast is for ambitious career professionals like you, wanting to create a life of choice and freedom, to be, do, and have more through overcoming limitations, to develop new perspectives and insights, and to redefine your success, be that in work, health, relationships, and so much more. In today's episode, I will be speaking to Todd Taylor. After graduating with an aerospace engineering degree, Todd spent 11 years at the Boeing company before transitioning to the IT services industry with electronic data systems, Hewlett-Packard, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, and DXC Technology, where he spent more than 20 years managing the industry's largest accounts. His experience includes enterprise strategy development and execution, global contract management and negotiation, executive leadership training and development, CXO relationship management, and large-scale account program and business operations management. He also has a breadth of international experience through extensive travel, as well as having lived in London for two years. After recently retiring from the IT industry, Todd became a professor at the University of Notre Dame within the College of Engineering, teaching undergraduate students the fundamentals of running a business, as well as what it takes to become a great leader. In today's episode, Todd will be sharing with us how he came to be involved in the largest business transformation of the time, the level of importance he places on relationships for career success, the challenges he overcame when leading a global account with a $1.5 billion P&L, more than 10,000 employees across more than 50 countries. He'll also share his passion for leadership, both personal and of others, and why he would encourage more women into the technology industry. So let's head over and hear what Todd has to say. I've been great, it's great to see you. And you, thank you for taking the time out to have a chat with me. Um, so let's just kick off straight away. I'd like to know a little bit about how you came to find, how did you come to find yourself involved in the largest business transformation of the time? And this was back in the early nineties when it wasn't so commonplace. So, so how did that happen? Tell me. Yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic opportunity for myself. I was working at the Boeing company at the time and I started with Boeing in, uh, oh, in the, in the late eighties as an aerospace engineer. Mm-hmm. And Boeing then kicked off a large transformation program. It was really an end-to-end program from sales through engineering, production, manufacturing, all the way through customer support. So it was a full life cycle. It touched every business process and every IT system, every major IT system, hundreds of them though. And my leader asked for volunteers from our department to represent our department in this transformation. I immediately raised my hand. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we can talk more about why you raise your hand so fast yep. later, but uh, <laughs> I raised my hand immediately because mm-hmm. I loved being part of something new, something challenging, and it was all about change, all about change. Right. And even as a young engineer, I knew there was something to be had with Boeing. There was improvements to be done. There was need for change, even in our department, let alone the entire company. So it became literally the largest transformation of its kind at that time, not just in the aerospace industry, but across all industries. It's uh, mm-hmm. widely written about at the time. 
And it saved the company hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars at the time in terms of cost reduction, gaining efficiencies. And it was just a fabulous, fabulous uh, experience. Mm. Wow. That, that, that is amazing. Back in those days as well. So, so tell me, you have had a really successful career in the IT outsourcing industry, starting with EDS, then Hewlett-Packard, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, and then ultimately with DXE. And that spanned 21 years. So you secured that assignment as a consequence of your relationship with the Boeing CIO. Um, and so for me, I'd like to understand from you, what level of importance do you place on building a strong network and good relationships within business? In other words, is it just about being in the right place at the right time or is it about cultivating those relationships? Well, I would never discount luck uh, a little bit to start with, but I was very fortunate to be working closely with the CIO of the Boeing company at the time for specifically the small airplane division, as we, as we called it, the 737s, the 757s, the narrow body airplanes. And he had asked me to come along with him uh, based upon our relationship, both personally and professionally, to Detroit, Michigan, to help General Motors transform themselves in a very similar uh, fashion to what the Boeing company was doing. It was right. also an end-to-end product development, manufacturing, supply chain, customer service, the dealer networks, everything. And so we got to apply a lot of the same lessons and learnings from Boeing into, uh, into Detroit with General Motors. But it all started with relationship. I mean, I got to know this gentleman. I still am uh, very close with him today. On a professional side, he appreciated uh, the value I guess I was offering. Uh, I loved his leadership style and his mentorship. Uh, his son went to the same university as I did, so we had this kind of personal bond as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we moved to Detroit from Seattle, Washington, you know, about uh, two-thirds across the way of the United States uh, to continue working with him for the next several mm-hmm. years. And so for me, relationships are what it's all about. You know, I've been telling my teams for decades, I've been telling my students, uh, even today as a, as a teacher, as a professor, that every business, no matter if it's a services business, a product business, it's all based on people and it's all based on relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And I absolutely agree with you on that. So um, to what extent then do you feel that these kind of relationships can influence the level of success that you can achieve in your career? It, it can absolutely have a, a great influence, a very positive influence. It can also have a negative influence, but a very, very positive influence. But I tell people, don't just build relationships with the people sitting around you within your same team next to your cube or office. Get out of your office, get out of your cube, walk the halls, build relationships with people, number one, proactively. So you have relationships formed cross-functionally before you might need them. What does cross-functionally mean? So if you're in the engineering department, building relationships with sales, with marketing, with the Mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing teams, with the customer services teams, and you do that before you need those relationships to be enabled. Yeah. So cross-functionally, across boundaries, globally, building relationships, uh, again, not just with your local team. That's interesting, but it's not going to lead to not just your success, but the success of the company. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a big believer in the more that you know about 
how a company works end to end, the more valuable you will be. And the only way you can exploit that value is through the relationships. Right. Okay. So I guess for me then, um, something that I love doing is building relationships cross-functional in particular, because I'm always interested in what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. um, what do you feel, um, or how do you feel about people who, who don't do that, but then they come and ask you for help? I mean, you must have had that experience at some point. Yeah, I mean, if, if people want and need your help, uh, I think it's a great sign of a great leader to always offer the help, right? Be mm -hmm. very empathetic and thoughtful and caring and, 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 and provide the help where you can. Um, and just because you have great relationships doesn't mean you won't need help from people. You will always need help. But it just, it just aids that if you already have built some level of relationship and then you mm -hmm. need the help, boy, the help comes a lot easier than yeah. if you're developing a relationship the very first time. Yeah. I can give you a great example mm -hmm. uh, about the proactiveness. So when I was, uh, and we'll talk more about this later, but when I was running a very large enterprise, uh, we had a significant issue happening in Korea at the time. It was impacting the customer's business live. This was about 3 a.m. Eastern time, mm -hmm. 3 p.m. or so uh, in the afternoon in the following day for Korea. And so now I'm on the phone at 3 a.m. with my team, with the customer's local team, and the CIO of my largest client. Mm -hmm. uh, he was not very happy. Um, we had a very difficult time understanding the dialect of our team in South Korea and understanding really what was happening and what the issues were. Well, we eventually sorted that out, but it was a very, let's just say, an ugly situation, very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Well, since then, I've been to South Korea probably a half a dozen times. I've met all the team many times. I've met their families. I know their dogs' names. I know everything about the team. I should have done that earlier in the process. So I knew them, I could communicate with them. They understood how, what I was speaking, what I was intending and what they were speaking and what they were intending. But we didn't, we did it in a reactive sense. Now I'm glad I still did it. I love the people, I love the, my old team in South Korea, but it was such an important element to our customer's business. I should have been there many, many months sooner, proactively building those relationships. Mm. And that, that does show you, isn't it, the importance of, of establishing those connections across the business, across Absolutely. the globe. Yeah. And, and so tell me, Todd, what did you want to be known for as you advanced your career? Boy, that's, um, that's really a, a great question. You know, I've, I've always prided myself in simply working harder than my peers in delivering higher quality outputs and more output than they could deliver. Mm -hmm. So it was really about the volume of what I could produce and at the quality levels that I could produce is really what kind of drove me. That was my competitive advantage, it turns out, and I didn't know it at the mm -hmm. time. It was never about, I want that role, I want that position, I want that title. Not once in my career, still in working today, 33 years later, not once have I ever said I want that role or want that job. It was through, quite frankly, very simply, hard work, doing the best that I could do, delivering more value than my peers, mm -hmm. who I, I think 
internally felt as a bit of a competitor to advancing, but it wasn't simply about advancing. It was about doing better work than anyone else. Yeah. Mm, I like that. Um, I guess part of that for me, and that's what I've started to realize now where I do what I do with the personal branding is that when I started out on my career, I believed that hard work alone was enough to get you that success. But what I started to learn very quickly was that, for example, I needed to build relationships. I needed to make myself known. I needed to stand out. So mm. I did what, something similar in that I'd work extra hard. I wanted to deliver the best quality of work so I, I could stand out. What would you say are maybe some other traits that are important as well as the working hard and building the relationships? Maybe yeah, one or sure. things that... No, there, there are, there are a number of traits and you know, a few that come to mind for me, number one is integrity is, mm -hmm. you know, you always have to do the right thing, make yeah. the right decision at the right time. But integrity is number one, mm -hmm. uh, you know, number two, honest, there is no gray area for honesty. Um, yeah. as they say, you don't need a memory if you're just being honest, yeah, <clears throat> right? You don't have to try to remember what happened. You just be honest. Um, I think that's, that's important. I think work ethic, as we talked about, uh, caring for people. Um, mm -hmm. so doing the right thing, doing the best that you can do it and caring for people along the way are, are the three key traits for me as a, as being a leader. Mm -hmm. And I would say we wrap all that together. I wrap all that together in a mantra that I've been talking about with my teams for decades and with my students today about leading like a champion today. And they're like, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, it's, it's got three key words in it, leading champion in today. And leadership and these attributes come together for me as being a visible role model of excellence. Right. So that's what leadership in a nutshell is for me, a visible role model of excellence. So you're establishing what good looks like, you're mm -hmm. communicating through your actions and your behavior and your attitudes to your team members, to your customers, to your suppliers, to all of your stakeholders mm -hmm. about excellence. Being a champion is a great word because especially in a global enterprise, when you're leading global teams, the word champion resonates with everybody. Whether you're sitting in the UK or Brazil or Russia or China or South yeah. Korea or in the United States, everybody knows what champion is, which is about being the absolute best that you mm -hmm. can be. And then today, today has the importance of not just time, but urgency. Right. You start now, this afternoon, not tomorrow, not next week, not next quarter. You start now. So being a visible role model of excellence being a champion, doing the absolute best that you can do, and you start now. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about championship, when I, and again, I, whether I'm talking to my students or my teams, every text message, every email, every presentation, every conversation, every coffee talk, everything is done at its absolute best. You cannot afford to cut corners because mm -hmm. to your point, it is your brand. As you start cutting corners, that becomes your brand. And, it's, and it takes so long to establish your brand and you can take it away with a snap of the fingers, you know? Yeah, a bit like trust, right? You can take a long time to build trust. You could lose that in a split second. Exactly. Mm. exactly. I love that. And, and actually, I've got three core values within my business. And one of them is, well, one is leadership, in fact, and the other one yes. is excellence. Um, yeah, for everything you do and the people that you work with. 
the people the way they shop and they want to be of excellence in the way they live their life, the way they carry themselves. So I like that. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so what I'd like to ask you is having spent 15 years with GM, so at the time EDS's largest client, mm-hmm. and eventually leading the entire global account. So that was a PL of $1.5 billion. It was more than 10,000 employees across more than 55 countries. That's correct. What would you say were your biggest challenges during that time? Well, you know, I could talk for hours on our (laughs) servicing our largest client at the time, which was a phenomenal experience. Number one, I spent 15 years in this environment and people say, well, how could you spend 15 years, you know, and and really, you know, a series of roles, but in that same environment, Mm -hmm. it was just a constant learning environment. So that was really great for me. But in terms of challenges, you know, two things come to mind. Number one is finding balance. And what I mean by that, it's not necessarily work-life balance, uh, but it's the balance of running a business. And as we were always trained, you think of a three-legged stool. It's your customers, it's your shareholders, and it's your people, your employees. And so if any one of those legs become out of balance, the stool can tip over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as an example, a lot of us at the time and a lot of business leaders are under pressure for reducing their costs. So you can reduce your cost and focus on one leg of that stool, your shareholders, drive up your profitability, and your stool can start to teeter because you're, you're potentially not doing well for your employees. You may be cutting employees, reducing your workforce. And for your customers, you may be impacting the service or the product quality, your contractual obligations, your relationship, and the stool can tip over very, very quickly. So while you're always under that pressure of delivering better business results, that's one leg and you have to do it in context and in relationship to the other two legs of that stool. So balance, number one, was a huge lesson that I learned in in leading this fantastic group of employees. The second one for me was really around globalization. Having worked in the environment, I was working in a global team and such, but when now you're leading, you know, over 10,000 employees in 50 plus countries, stitching this fabric together of human capital was probably my biggest challenge. You know, how do you get them all on the same page? You get alignment, you, you get the most efficient work structure you can. Mm-hmm. People ask me, well, why did you have people in 55 countries? I mean, who does this? Well, we were where our clients were. Yeah. So our clients had assembly plants and powertrain plants and, and dealerships in countries literally all over the world. So in more countries than we were in, actually. Uh, but that became a big challenge for me is globalizing and integrating and creating what I call a fabric of human capital across this team so that we all operated uh, on the same page, focused on the same set of objectives all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those, those are the two biggest areas, you think? Those are the two biggest challenges. Yeah. Um, there, there were, you know, there's a long list of, uh, I'll <laughs> say, second tier challenges. Um, you know, in terms of learnings, though, there were a lot of learnings that me personally as a leader came out, came out of this with. And the first was communication. Um, mm-hmm. 
know, how do you communicate effectively and simply to 10,000 people, not just the number of people, but the diversity of people, yeah. Uh, the globalization, the people sitting again in all corners of the world. How do you communicate simply and effectively? That was a big learning for me. Creating a simple strategy that everybody could understand, internalize, and follow mm -hmm. so that they're a part of the team going in the same direction. I think uh, another learning for me, which was, which was a great outcome from a business perspective and a customer relationship perspective, was this mindset and culture of continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. So we drove into the teams, you know, you're constantly going to raise the bar on yourself and we're going to raise the bar on you as well because the customer was continuing to raise the bar on us. Right. That was the, the culture of the relationship was continuous improvement. So instilling the right programs, the right metrics, uh, the right initiatives globally across all of our services at the time. It not only demonstrated we could do it from the delivery aspect, but it actually gained us more business because the customer trusted us even more yeah. because we yeah. were investing in ourselves and mm. our teams and again, driving this mindset. And then, you know, the last, uh, well, again, there's, there's hundreds of learnings. The, the last learning that comes to mind for me uh, is a personal one, which is uh, never take myself too seriously. Um, you know, you, you sit there with the big title and the, in the fancy office and you got all the people and everybody's, you know, trying to support you. But at the end of the day, I am first and foremost, a husband and a father. And which gets into work-life balance a bit, but also it's really priorities. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're on this world a little, not as long as we'd like to be, right? A little shorter than everyone would like. And so I think prioritization of your personal and professional worlds as they merge together mm -hmm. is really, really important. So while I'm very humbled and appreciative of the role that I was playing, I also try not to take it too seriously, have a little bit of fun in the workplace and try to enjoy yourself, you know, mm -hmm. as you go through uh, some of these challenging positions. Yeah, I think that's key because sometimes it's almost remembering it is a job at the end of the day. Yes, it's your career. You want to be successful. But I think if you almost take the pressure off yourself, you'll find yourself. It'll be, be easier, I guess, because you're not so. pressurizing yourself so much. I think so. Where were you when I was leading this this team? Why, why were you not helping me consult uh, <laughs> with me and advising me? <laughs> I actually, GM was given to me um, when I first joined EDS, actually. So I did, I, I think I worked on it a couple of couple of years. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, a few people can remember me. But yeah, everyone's touched GM, haven't they? Yeah. Um, and I also, um, so a question I had actually on what you just said there, um, where you talked about the continuous development of employees. What was the, broadly speaking, what were the employees' response to that? Because, you know, in my experience, you've got two types of people. You've got some people who want to continually grow and develop and, and um, almost accelerate their career. And then you've got people who are just happy doing what they do. Yeah. So how did you manage that? How did you find that? Well, it, it, that's a great question also, and it is very challenging. And I, I've historically I would say put employees into three buckets and I try not to stereotype too much, but there, there is a group of employees who naturally always want to do better and get better mm -hmm. and will self-invest all the time. And they're constantly learning and they're very curious and they want to do uh, better than anyone. Uh, 
There's another group of employees kind of in the middle who I think uh, are able to do more, can do more, and it takes some motivation, some encouragement, potentially putting them in the, a different role than maybe they are now, getting them the proper training and, and development and encouraging mm -hmm. them a little bit. And then there's, you know, there's, there's always a group of employees who may not be cut out for the business that you're asking them to support. It may be too fast to pace. It may be, you know, too much pressure too demand on their lives, et cetera, or they just don't have the skills or they don't want to learn. They're not interested in, in continuing to improve and helping. And, you know, if we can't find them the right position, then, you know, we'll try to find them a different job either in the company or even in a different company, if that's what it takes. That, mm -hmm. That's part of the caring aspect. You don't just write them off. You yeah. still look after them. Um, no employee gets left behind is, is mm -hmm. kind of the model we worked under. And so that's kind of, I would say, generally how I look at people and, and, and the employees that I've dealt with and who have worked for me into those kind of three buckets. Okay, thank you. That's very interesting perspective. I like it because it's very supportive, inclusive environment, and it's like accepting that you've got people who want different things. There's different motivations. That I think, as a manager, director, it's important to recognise that as well. Absolutely. And so, um, you've experienced a, a vast array of, array of roles across the technology sector. So, for example, you've had service management, contract management, account leadership for some of the industry's largest commercial accounts, as well as development training. So tell me, which would you say out of all of that, been your favorite role and why? Yeah, a couple roles really jump off the table for me. One is account leadership. So whether I was leading General Motors globally, I was leading our Deutsche Bank business out of London, and I was leading uh, United Airlines here in the United States. The account leadership roles, and again, I think this applies to no matter what company you work for, whether it's a product company, a service company, you're in the IT industry or the manufacturing or the healthcare industry. As an account leader, you are kind of the mini CEO of the business. You know, the mm -hmm. buck stops with you. Now, yeah. that can be stressful, but it also gives you the opportunity to do lots of different things, like set the strategy for the team, set the strategy for the business, and then get to put in the programs and the initiatives in, in place to actually drive and achieve that strategy. And so I like, uh, you know, having, uh, taking the bull by the horns, as we say in the US, I don't know if that translates well in the, in the UK. Um, we'll talk a little bit more later about the differences in our English language here. Uh, but, you know, having the ability to set the course, and set that journey and the pace in which you achieve those results is really exciting for me. Mm -hmm. And so again, this kind of mini CEO role being, being in charge of the business on an end to end basis. Yeah. From business results itself to the services or the products and the quality you're delivering to the people and the people care and the responsibilities that come with that, I think are mm -hmm. incredible, incredible opportunities. The second one uh, role, which is completely different, um, I was leading for uh, Hewlett Packard and Hewlett Packard Enterprise at the time, was related to account management and account uh, leaders, but it was really the development and training responsibility for all account leaders worldwide. So I was selected again, I didn't raise my hand for this, I was selected for this and they wanted me to literally go around the world and train all the account leaders as to what good looked like. <laughs> 
Um, how do you negotiate? How do you run a P&L? How do you deal with uh, difficult clients? Uh, how do you manage a team? How do you achieve globalization objectives, et cetera? And it was fascinating. I loved it. I loved it because mm -hmm. it was hands-on with the account leaders, with my peers, my brothers and sisters, I felt like. And it wasn't just Todd lecturing to them. It was really a collaborative experience where everybody got to share best practices. Mm -hmm. And we raised the bar on all of our account leadership worldwide, about 500 or so individuals to deliver better to the business, to deliver better to the people, and to deliver better to their clients. Again, this kind of three-legged stool came into effect even in our training and development sense. Mm -hmm. So that was a great experience. And actually, it was good practice for what I'm doing today as a professor at the university. Um, but it was very, uh, very rewarding, and it was great to give mm -hmm. back. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. And then, so we met when you moved to London. So you were in London for two years. Uh, leading the Deutsche Bank account for HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and then DXE. Mm -hmm. So tell me, first of all, what were the biggest cultural differences that you had to adapt to? Well, let me first say that um, for all my friends in the, in the UK, I love all of you. I mean, I had such, such an appreciation um, for the culture, for the people. And by the way, uh, most of my relatives are from, from England anyway, so I, we're probably related somewhere down the road. Um, uh, I have, uh, by the way, I, I figured out that uh, my 14th great-grandfather is the same as Princess Diana. So, you know, maybe I got some royal blood in me or something. But, um, but seriously, you know, in terms of culture, I, I was prepared for it to a certain extent because of my global experience and working with teams yeah. around the world. But everybody said, you know, listen, you all speak the same language. It's, it's fine. Well, I quickly learned both personally and professionally living in London that language is not the same. Uh, we actually use a lot of the different words that mean different things. And uh, one, one silly example was I was walking my dog, uh, out in the muse one day and and the lady said doesn't she look smart in her jumper and i thought what is she talking about i said so i said well daisy is actually very stupid she's not smart at all and she said no 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 she looks cute and i said oh well, that was my first indication that smart equals cute and jumper equals sweater so uh, two examples right but the the language is actually more different than people think so there was this there was settling in of that standpoint. The other was, frankly, living and working in a very large city like London, the people on my team, you know, they might have lived 50, 75, 100 miles away, and they're commuting in on three to four different means of transportation, potentially, mm -hmm. driving to a local train station, taking one or two trains in, taking a couple different tube stops to eventually get to Canary Wharf, and, you know, we just don't do that here in the United States for the most part. We just don't. We might drive 20, 30 miles at the most, typically, right. you know, but this, this kind of multi means of, of transportation and taking, by the way, three hours in the morning and at night. And I found out by Friday, the team was exhausted, absolutely mm -hmm. physically exhausted from just coming and going to work. 
So I had to change my expectations a little bit because I'm a bit of a workaholic and, and um, I'm early morning and a late morning and a late person. So that doesn't help my team that well. So I had to adjust a little bit of the cultural norms working in the UK, which were different in terms of time management and availability of people um, versus in the United States. So those are just a couple of things, but uh, I love my team in the UK. Love mm. my team. Yeah. And so what was your best memory during that time in London? You know, I, I, I want to come back to people um, because everybody is very caring. They're very sensitive, uh, extremely thoughtful. Um, I found I found people to be very welcoming. Now, I, that doesn't always come across, I think, and sometimes in the stereotypes. But everybody was extremely thoughtful and helpful for my wife and I. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the people. I'm, I'm always on WhatsApp or texting a lot of the team members uh, because I miss them. I miss the people. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic people. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a good team. I'm, I've worked with many of them as well, and it was absolute pleasure yes, to yeah. work with them. I'm still in, in touch with them too. Um, and so tell me, just moving slightly onto a, a different topic here, you're an advocate, I know, of encouraging more women into yep. the technology industry. Um, why do you think we're struggling to attract women into the, into the tech world? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. And, and I've had the pleasure of, of working in diversity and inclusion for over 20 years uh, mm-hmm. across all various diverse groups, women or uh, men and women of color, uh, et cetera. And, you know, I think it comes down to a very simple conclusion I've made, uh, Lila, which is people tend to hire people that look and act and think like they do. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's just a, it's something innate to all of us. And unless you are very deliberate about changing that, it will be that way forevermore. So one of the things that happened in uh, Hewlett Packard when I was working there that Meg Whitman put in place was a, a diverse slating process. Now, what did that mean? It meant that every executive role from a director or above that was open, uh, the human resources department would not go forward with filling that position unless the slate was completely diverse. So you had people of color, you had potentially in the time in the United States, Asian Americans, uh, potentially uh, Native Americans. Uh, as well as women, et cetera. And it had to be a very diverse slate. So we're not gonna start selecting people until we have candidates from all those diverse uh, constituents before we move forward. Right. So I think, I think that's just so important. And uh, you're right. I mean, I've been a huge proponent of women. In fact, my best boss still to this day was at Boeing and she was a woman. And uh, just very thoughtful, very caring, still very driven, but had a way about her of building a great team that has not been replicated since working for her. And I've worked for some fabulous, fabulous people in the IT industry, some of the mm-hmm. best and brightest people. Yeah. But she as a leader encompassed uh, a set of attributes that I would say more on the emotional intelligence side uh, right. than, than any of my... Uh, you know, other leaders that I've worked for. So I think, I think, again, I think it comes back to being very deliberate. You have to put a plan in place um, to attract, to, you know, not only recruit, but to hire and retain 
women mm -hmm. in these roles. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just touching on that then. So that, that boss that you refer to, um, emotional intelligence is a, is a key there. Give me a couple of examples of that so people can understand what it takes to be a leader in that yeah. realm. Yeah, sure. In fact, I, I teach my students about emotional intelligence as well, uh, because I think it's such an important topic. We tend to think about uh, the intelligent quotient, the IQ, as being yeah. the end all, that you need to be the smartest person in the room and know more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I teach at a very prestigious university and, and they, you know, they solicit students who are very bright. So they're all extremely bright. Their IQs are off the charts. Their EQ is just becoming, you know, just starting. And when you look at all the research, IQ tends to plateau very early in life, you know, in the late teens, early 20s, and it actually starts to decline over the years. EQ, mm -hmm. or the emotional quotient, emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. continues to expand even in your 60s, potentially in your early 70s, because it's experience-based. Right. And so the attributes of emotional intelligence, things like being thoughtful and caring and sensitive and being humble, having humility, uh, you know, these being honest, having integrity, these are nothing about being smart. These are all about being a great person, a good person. Mm -hmm. And more and more in my experience, I would rather have people with a high EQ versus a high IQ. Mm -hmm. They're going to be more collaborative. They're going to be willing to do what it takes. They're going to work hard and not just rely upon their smarts. They're going to be curious. And so, you know, over, over the course of the years, I would much rather have a person that has a very high EQ that is willing to learn, wants to learn, is curious, is a good collaborator, is a good team member versus someone who's the smartest in the room, but frankly, you can't deal with. Mm. They can't, they're unapproachable. Yeah. Yeah. And for our listeners, would you recommend, like someone wants to refine their emotional intelligence, what would you recommend them to do? Are there any books you could recommend or... Well, there, there, are, uh, there are a number of books. There's a number of uh, apps out there, too, for your phone. You can actually get, so every day it gives you another kind of uh, attribute, if you will, to practice. I think um, one thing that's useful, there's a number of tests out there online that are free where you can get a sense for what is your emotional intelligence today, what are some of the attributes that are, you know, stand out for you, and which are some that maybe don't. Mm -hmm. And then you, frankly, need to practice you know, you need to put yep. time on your agenda to think about well, what does a good emotionally intelligent leader look like and sound like, and are they approachable and just really hone in on some of the skills. And then, you know, I would also say it takes time, you know, it takes mm. years of experience, but no one ever talked to me about emotional intelligence until I was probably 45 it would have been nice to know about emotional intelligence early on um, yeah. so I could be aware of, you know, even the vocabulary, let alone the importance of it. And, but more and more uh, HR leaders in lots of different industries and lots of companies are putting more emphasis on the EQ side of interviews and how you relate to people and that kind of thing versus what you are bringing to the table. Mm. because they can, especially for young people, because they can train you. They can give you the skills 
they need you to have for a specific role or roles in their yeah. company. It's difficult to just train to raise your EQ. That becomes more of an internal exercise and activity mm -hmm. that you have to focus in on. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with you there. And just staying on the subject of, of women in, in the technology industry, what reasons would you give to encourage more women to consider a career in, in the tech industry? And this doesn't have to be um, a, a tech role. It could be that there's right. so many non-tech roles. I think people forget that. Um, so what would you say? Well, that, that's the first thing I was going to suggest is it's flexibility in terms of role. So whether you are a deep technical, technically trained person or want to be, great, perfect fit. But if you're in finance, if you're in sales, or if you're in marketing, you're in communications, uh, you, you want to go into leadership versus a technical route, everything is available. Project management. That's the beauty about the IT industry. I think sometimes it gets a bad rap because of the label of IT. It's still an industry with a business, with a P&L that needs finance. You have to sell, you have to market, you have mm -hmm. to create services, you have to deliver services. So it has the full gamut of any industry or any business. So flexibility, I think one in terms of role selection and, and what can be, um, you know, lots of opportunity from that standpoint. I think, you know, one which is gaining traction, frankly, is the ability to work remotely. Um, mm -hmm. Not all industries do that. And if you've seen the recent news with Facebook, Twitter, and, and and Google and others, they're allowing many, many roles to work from home permanently. Mm -hmm. So I think this is helpful for women because of their desire to continue, you know, or to, you know, to raise children, to raise a family, and to be, you know, a key player in the caregiving, not the player, but a key player in the caregiving. So I think that's important in terms of, you know, the ability to work remotely. You don't have to commute two or three hours or even 30 minutes to work. Mm -hmm. um, thirdly for me is I think we need more creativity in the IT industry and uh, I've always said that uh, you know women are more creative than men it's my belief um, and so I think there's a natural creativity element that women can bring to the table to help uh, create new solutions better solutions etc into the future and then uh, finally you know this comes from a famous quote from uh, father Theodore Hesburgh which was our previous president at our university it used to be an all-male school up until the 70s and until it became co-ed and he made this statement he said you know why should we eliminate 50 percent of the smartest people in the world from coming to our university and I think about that too in tech, you know, as a, as a woman, you should feel encouraged, empowered, and motivated to get into this industry because the industry needs you. Even if the industry or the company you're looking into doesn't necessarily recognize it, don't stop. Don't stop because there are going to be people that advocate for you, but we also want you to continue to advocate for yourself. Yeah. And we need the 50% of the brightest minds that we're not seeing yet. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And so to wrap up, Todd, thank you so much for taking time out today to have a chat with me. Is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Any food for thought? You know, this has been a great conversation, by the way. It's, it's got, uh, got me re-energized uh, on several <laughs> fronts, I think. Um, 
listen, I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you're doing. You know, in terms of leadership and branding, I think, you know, it comes back to very simple things for me. Do your absolute best, you know, show people that you care, you know? So simple, simple reflection like that, I think can make you become a better person, become a better worker, become more valuable to your company than you would otherwise. Mm -hmm. Awesome, thank you so much, Todd. Very welcome. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And if you enjoyed and gained value from today's episode, then do please leave a review telling us your key learnings and what you enjoyed the most. And do please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can spread the word on life leadership, creating a life of choice, freedom and new possibilities. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn. And if you would like to learn more about how we can work together, either DM me on LinkedIn or email me. All details and resources can be found in the show notes.